0: Blog
1: Talk Radio Good afternoon Blog Talk listeners, Chuck Morse, the host of Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday. Noon to 2 p.m. Emanating out of Boston, Massachusetts. I've been at this game a while now. Uh, we've got a pretty good show today, I would say. I've got I've got an excellent show. Why not say um, we've got uh, Joel Gilbert coming on? He's the author of The uh, Dreams from My Real Father. This is a very controversial book uh, about uh, his uh, the, a rather uh, interesting claim, I think. That uh, Barack Obama's father was not Barack Obama Senior, but was rather uh, this guy Marshall Davis, who was a communist member of the party, and um, he has a picture up on the blog site "Dreams from My Real Father," which uh, shows a very uh, good resemblance between Barack Obama and Frank Marshall Davis. Um, we shall see. I mean, I, I think that um, it's one of these uh, books that is legitimate it was published by Wildner Daily which in disclosure also published my book um it's uh, speculative at best but uh, we'll hear from uh, we'll hear directly from Mr Gilbert on the topics of his book in hour number 2 i am joined by Stanley Kurtz, who is a uh, an economist by training he is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center a former adjunct fellow with the Hudson Institute, Special Interest in America's Culture Wars, his writings on the family, feminism, homosexuality, affirmative action, and campus political correctness have appeared regularly for publications such as the National Review, Policy Review, Weekly Standard, Wall Street Journal, and Commentary. So in our number two, we've got a pretty highbrow intellectual, uh, very much uh, one of these types that – I think – it was it not um, former Supreme Court Justice Potter, I believe, who sent out a memo back in the early 70s, a memo that some on the left might refer to as infamous? I would say it's wonderful, that basically made the case, and I think quite accurately, that in the 1960s, the left had, had achieved the upper hand in the intellectual argument, in the cultural argument. Uh, and that that was damaging to American notions of free market capitalism and and individual rights and all of the things that, um, well, conservatives certainly do stand for, but would be, I would argue, natural to man. Uh, And um, Mr. Potter, who was at the time a businessman, he called – he sent this uh, letter to other other businessmen around the country, corporate heads, saying – Corporations are under siege as a result of this ideological shift. This could hurt us unless we respond in the field of ideas. And his recommendation was for these corporations to fund the establishment of conservative think tanks and also to help foster and nurture and develop conservative intellectuals on college campuses. And that's exactly what they did. They established the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute and other conservative think tanks and foundations and that indeed they helped intellectuals such as Stanley Kurtz and others uh begin to uh make their way into uh college campuses and into the ivory tower so called where they would um you know develop their um you know their intellectual heft and they've done a very good job of it i mean i think that um they have result it has resulted in a uh, in a re-emergence re-emer- of uh, of the conservative movement, really. Uh, so Stanley Kurtz will be with us in hour number two. Uh, Joel Gilbert is with us in hour number one. Uh, in the meantime, I would make a I would just suggest as a talking point, if you will, even though that's a kind of a trendy word, a thought that is entirely my own. My own talking point This isn't sent to me by anyone. And that is, do is the left and our left-wing thinkers, is their belief system, is what they are about, as it were, their worldview, their universe, based upon lies, or are they just liars? Uh, you know, this is my thinking when I listen to this utterly preposterous and hypocritical campaign here in Massachusetts being waged by Professor Elizabeth Warren of Harvard against against Senator Scott Brown. Her entire life, certainly her professional life, and probably her personal life to a certain degree, uh, given the fact that she she calls herself a family person, but nobody knows that she's divorced and recently remarried. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying I only bring it up as sort of a as as indicative of a life, certainly professionally, in which it's based upon lies, and I think that it's not even necessarily conscious lies. Um, It's it's almost like uh, internalized lies that become a part of who they are. It becomes their life is woven into this great myth. That um, and I've noticed this often with the left, that uh you know, and I think that Rush Limbaugh recently, my my great colleague, a great giant in our industry, made this case with regard to President Barack Obama, that you know everything it's sort of a a house of lies, And I would argue that that is because the entire left-wing edifice is based upon several big, big lies. And therefore, all of these lies build the scaffolding to further preserve and advance those big lies. Um, whereas conservatives, they certainly do lie. Everyone lies to a certain extent. That's part of human nature. We all lie. We're all liars to an extent. I mean, the truth is – is uh, the approximation of truth is not something that anyone totally approaches – all the time But I would argue that When you're, you're talking about conservative lies You're not talking about conservatism as a lie You're talking about individual conservatives Who may from time to time struggle with the truth Or may choose to deliberately lie For reasons that are wrong, of course Always is wrong But nevertheless, their philosophy Their basic means of belief Is not based upon a lie and that therefore when conservatives lie that's an exception to the rule it's not in any way to suggest that it doesn't happen but that it is not the norm Um, whereas with the left the entire edifice is based upon lies Uh, their entire lives are based upon lies now, why do I say that um, we all lie? Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, we, you know, most people who are married know that um, you're not always 100% perfectly honest with your spouse every single second of the day. And there's, you know, it's a matter of degrees. We try to be, and the the more we, we I, would, I mean, I hate to even use the word lie, but I will. The more that we lie, the worse the, the situation. But nevertheless, uh, you know, we do tend to craft things sometimes in a way that makes them palatable. Like if you have bad news that you have to tell your spouse, and you should, sometimes we may not tell them immediately. We may wait until the right occasion, maybe when they're feeling good, you know, maybe that evening. And sometimes we give ourselves a little time to think it through and sort of – I hate to use the word market this, but that's really what it is. It's lying. I mean, we're we're figuring out how to present it in a way that puts it in a favorable light or that that lessens it as a blow. Now, there may be very good reasons for that. You know, you want want to uh, try to put in the positive aspects and reduce the negative, but nevertheless – You're engaged in a rather subtle deception, and, you know, at what point does it cross a line and is an outright lie? That's something that's a judgment call, but there is an event that's occurred that's true, and it's a matter of filtering it through our own thinking and our own self-interest, if you will, in order to present it in a way that uh, is beneficial, to us or to our spouse. Sometimes, sometimes you're protecting, you know, your spouse. You know, you get a bad uh, medical diagnosis. You may not want to tell the person everything, right away. You know, those are, that's lying, but there's a reason for it. So I simply bring this up because it's a very complex subject, and that everyone lies. I'll give one more example before we go to a break. I interviewed. Uh, you know a couple a while back, someone who was an expert on people helping people get jobs and they help people craft resumes, literally how to write their resume, how to go to a job interview, how to be interviewed, how to talk to an interviewee and If you think about it what what the what this company was recommending is no different than what any company of like Mind recommends, which is how to lie in other words. You know, how to take the good aspects of your resume, the the positive elements of your career, and how to put those things up front and how to then craft those things in a way that maximizes what they were. You know, not necessarily crossing a line and embellishing, although if you can, they certainly suggest it without getting caught, but even without embellishing, nevertheless, you're creating a certain image. At the same time, there may be some negative aspects of your career, things that are not helpful to your image that the company suggests you not mention or you mention in a very carefully crafted context so as to reduce the negative impact of those things. And sometimes if you can't not mention them because they're available to people, they they, they tell you how how to do it. So in other words, they're telling you how to lie. They're telling you how to craft an image. There are truths in it, but you're basically marketing yourself in a way that creates an image that may not entirely be true. So my contention is that this whole idea of lying is, is very much in, in – it has to be viewed in a context. And that conservatives generally and, – and I'm saying this as someone who has been doing talk radio now for over 10 years – Pretty much nonstop with a couple of interruptions. I have interviewed literally hundreds, if not probably close to a thousand people, both left and right. And I have noticed that there is a when you're talking with someone on the left, it is much more of a pronounced pattern of lying than if you're talking with someone on the right, who generally may be they may engage in a specific lie but not usually and they don't lie about what they believe in they're very honest about it and upfront about it usually they don't have any problem defending it um they may the only reason why they may not talk about everything they believe in is because they they know that they're going to elicit some terrible attacks for that but nevertheless essentially at its core they're honest about what they believe in and that is they believe in what i would contend are ideas and concepts that are natural to the human being individual rights, free enterprise, the right to trade goods and services self interest the right to form a family as a private entity uh you know less government interference in one's life uh you know uh, an adherence to standards outside of government, in other words, generally. Maybe that's a euphemism for Judeo-Christian moral standards in this country. In another country, there are other religious standards. I mean, if you're a resident of Thailand, I suppose it would be Buddhist standards. But either way, they are standards that run outside of any particular man-made government and that deal with universal beliefs, you know, that are immutable, usually handed down through some divine means that cannot be corrupted or manipulated by people. And as such, I I would argue that these are ideas and institutions that are natural to people and that, therefore, people who adhere to those ideas do not have to lie. Whereas on the left, you have this edifice of of lies and this scaffolding of lies because they are advocating ideas that are unnatural to people. Primarily, this belief that we require, as a human society, a gradual but inexorable increase in the size and the authoritarian nature of government in order to then bring about some sort of a a hazy idea of a utopia in the far distant future, uh, what Karl Marx referred to as when governments wither away and man is changed, literally. Physically, biologically, emotionally, mentally, in every other way, so that it's a new man, it's a new creature that, that can exist in harmony with his fellow man, and there's no more need for such uh, you know superstitions as private property and belief in God and family and love and individual identity, that we all become absolute de facto equal, that this is held up as the ideal always has been, going back to the days of Plato's Republic, and that this is unnatural. No one would volunteer for this. No one wants this because it doesn't resonate with the the genuine nature of the human being. We are self-interested people. We do hold up our own interests first. We do want to have privacy. We do want to have sovereignty. We want to be able to determine how our life is lived on this short time we have on this planet. And we want to be able to determine our own destinies, that of ourselves and our families. We want to be sociable beings because that's part of our nature, but sociable with people to whom we want to associate and for self-interested reasons, whether those reasons be professional, whether they be just social because we want to have human contact, or whether they be personal, as in the case of... uh, marriage or, or, uh, you know, just personal friendships. But nevertheless, they offer self-interested reasons, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, So getting to the main point here, conservatives just don't have to lie. They believe in that which is natural to man. That's why I've said that conservatism is not an ideology. Conservatism is that which is natural. But on the left, you have this overarching ideology that is not natural, and therefore it requires a massive amount of lying. Now, I bring up Elizabeth Warren only because she is a, a an interesting case study in the, the ability for the, a left-wing ideologue, and she certainly is that, to not only lie in terms of who she is in a professional life, But also lie probably to herself and expect to be supported in that because she expects that she's operating in a world and in a context where other people are engaging in these same lies and therefore that she should be able to get away with it, which is why it is a shock when she actually has to answer to some of these lies by a political opponent, in this case, Scott Brown. That's what's interesting to me about this race that he is exposing the lie and that she continues to insist on lying because that's all she can do. I think that she genuinely has reached the point where she believes that she's telling the truth. But yet it's pretty obvious when you take a look at her career that she has obviously lied about her career all her life. And, you know, the sad thing about it really and this is i mean I, I don't i shouldn't say sad i'm not sad over this but that the irony of this is that she is the things that she has done in her life are actually fine she's take she's you know watched out for number 1 herself that's why she was flipping properties in um, in you know Oklahoma City and taking advantage of, of buying up distressed properties, using her expertise as a bankruptcy lawyer to buy up you know foreclosed upon properties and then flipping them a short time later and making a big fat hefty profit, um, you know, and engaging in various relationships with banks which allowed her to do this at a uh, kind of at a subprime mortgage interest rates. You know, she had family members who were helping her with uh, with repairing these properties. She did it for herself, and she did it for her other family members. Why? Because she wanted to get rich. She wanted to make some money off of it. Why not? I don't begrudge it. But where the lie comes in is that this kind of activity didn't comport with her ideology and her publicly stated beliefs then or in the future which was that we have to go after these greedy mortgage companies who are giving out these subprime mortgages. We have to go after the banks who are foreclosing on people. You know, these are people who can't, why don't they renegotiate those mortgages? These are people who got caught up in debt and they should be helping them. You know, so, you know, there's the private Elizabeth Warren who's making a a bundle of dough on, on this situation. And then the public Elizabeth Warren who is, you know, bemoaning the fact that um, that this is happening. And yet she could get away with it because of those circles that she traveled in. She could probably convince herself that she was not only doing nothing wrong, but either she was in denial altogether or she somehow, in a rather contorted means, convinced herself that she was doing something good and that she wasn't doing what she was doing. Then she gets to... Uh, climb up the ladder of uh, of an academic career from having been a teacher. You know, she's a mediocre intellect at best, but yet she works her way up into eventually becoming a tenured professor at Harvard, a very rare position, one that does not hand it out easily. Uh, does this with very little actual writing to her credit. You know, she wasn't a great scholar, but she did it, and we can assume, we can say this with, with a fair amount of certainty unless she proves otherwise, by claiming to be a minority when she applied in certain situations when it would benefit her and in other situations where she applied for other positions, she did not claim to be a minority. She claimed to be white. The reason she claimed to be a minority at Harvard and at University of Pennsylvania was because those particular campuses were looking to have X number of minorities on their staff uh, in order to meet kind of a public relations image of of caring about diversity, ethnic diversity. So she was able to check off minority and get a position and became known in the academic world as a person of color uh, and was listed as such in several scholarly publications and by Harvard. Uh, That's because she checked it off. Now, whether or not she was is beside the point. The fact is that she, even by her own definition, she would not qualify under so-called you know, diversity or affirmative action definitions. She would not qualify as a minority any more than I would qualify as a minority, because I happen to be a minority. I'm Jewish, but that's not recognized, and I know this as an accepted minority in these new standards now we could talk at length about the nature of these new standards whether or not they're good or bad I generally I generally think that they are very bad but the fact is that they are what they are this is what colleges look at this is what industry looks at when they hire people for positions there are standards that are set by a national agency and that each of these institutions whether it be a college or whether it be a a business, has these standards in place. Harvard is certainly no different. And that Elizabeth Warren, knowing this as a brilliant attorney, knew that she did not qualify as a minority, even if she were. And yet she checked it off. Now, why do I say she checked it off? Because Scott Brown, during the last debate, and the Boston Globe, not just Scott Brown, but the liberal Boston Globe, had asked her to release her personnel files, So they can determine whether or not she checked that off, and she is refusing to do it. Why? Because she's hiding something. That's why. Instead, she's going to turn and try to point the finger at Scott Brown and at others and say, you're attacking my family, which is a bunch of nonsense. In other words, she benefited from affirmative action, a program that she supports, even though she's not a minority. She took advantage of it to advance her career. And that, besides being despicable, is an example of what I'm de- I'm talking about here with regard to the big lie. Scott Brown has also asked Elizabeth Warren to release her clients. Uh, apparently, she was working without a license in Massachusetts, which may or may not be legal. It probably is legal because she wasn't litigating. She wasn't actually writing cases. She was there more as a... Um, as, a, as what, what's called of counsel or an advisor. She didn't appear in court, I don't think. At least we'll wait and see. But uh, And then that itself doesn't look right. But putting that aside, she represented a long list of corporate clients, including Travelers Insurance and including a big steel company, and got paid very, very well for those representations. All the while, as a professor at Harvard, she had no problem making tons of money working for these big multinational corporations. And yet what's her public persona? She stands up at the Democratic National Convention with her arms in the air like a, like like Che Guevara, like a communist revolutionary. We got to go after the big guys, you know, we got to, you know, stop the millionaires and the billionaires, she tells us. And uh, you know, that the the game is fixed against you the working person, you know, and and, and here she is Believing this, and she's got all these people gathering around and just going, oh, I see their lawn signs all over Massachusetts, usually in very wealthy homes, by the way, saying, oh, yes, yes, we have to go after the big guys. You know, she um, and we've got. – I've gotten into what she did at Travelers Insurance, how she screwed over people with asbestos cancer and by setting up this separate fund that was never funded, you know, this brilliant lawyer – and how she then, now apparently it came out a few days ago, she worked for a coal company. <laughs> you know, evil coal, strip mining, tops of mountains, polluting the environment. There's nobody, nobody, the left doesn't hate anyone as much as they hate coal. And yet she actually worked for this coal company in opposition to the federal government and to our Congress, particularly Ted Kennedy, apparently, who put in legislation to protect coal workers from you know protect their pensions she represented the coal company going up against that to try to help the coal company screw the workers and yet again she stands there astride with this this big left wing pictures of her close up you know with the the hero worship this great figure you know this uh this glorious figure and and this is i think that this is she is indicative of, frankly, what most people on the left are. Once in a while, you get someone who is honestly on the left, like a Noam Chomsky. But I'm talking about, you know, the establishment left, who is presenting this image to the public, and yet they obviously have not lived by themselves at all. I mean, this is, you know, she has been a corporate, you know, big corporation hack, defending big corporations, Uh, against the assault uh, by, by little people, by working people, for many years. And not only does she refuse to release her records at her employment at Harvard, her personnel file at Harvard and elsewhere during a campaign, and that is a legitimate request by a campaign to ask for those records, but apparently now she will not also release a list of her corporate clients And yet she had them all those years. We know about two of them at least. But uh, I don't know. Is she going to get away with this? Is Massachusetts so brain dead or so delusional, frankly, that they're going to allow this to happen? I don't know. I don't know. Apparently they're running neck and neck. Um, We shall see. Anyway, we'll take a brief break. I'm expecting Joel Gilbert. We'll see whether he shows. Um, You're welcome to join the conversation, of course, here at Chuck Moore Speaks, 347-327-9849. That number again, 347-327-9849. We're talking about uh, Elizabeth Warren and her fraudulent persona and how that's a reflection generally of the left. Uh, We could talk about whatever is on your mind, listener. There's a good headline in the uh, Drudge Report right now. Obama has my vote. He gave me a free phone. This is a woman in um, Cleveland, Ohio. Apparently the Obama campaign is handing out free phones. I guess we know what they're spending their money on to help people get out the vote. They're probably going to call them on Election Day and walk them to the polls. Anyway... You're welcome to join me again. The number is 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. 327-9849 two seven nine eight is on your mind this afternoon? Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. 327 9849 And uh, I'm awaiting um, Joel Gilbert This is really the last chance for him on my show Because uh, I think one other time he couldn't show up um, his, complaint, his contention in his book Dreams from My Real Father Is that Barack Obama's life is more than just the conventional lies that we get from the left, that Barack Obama actually is is a much deeper liar than that. I'm not endorsing this book. I don't have any idea, uh, but I do think that it is published by a legitimate publishing house. It's a movie, actually. It's a a DVD. um, And that uh, it's something that we at least ought to get a hearing on. I want to hear what his evidence is. Um, He says here, dreams from my father, a story of reds and deception. At age 18, Barack Obama admittedly arrived at Occidental College, a committed revolutionary Marxist. What was the source of Obama's foundation of Marxism? Throughout his 2008 presidential campaign and term in office, questions have been raised regarding Barack Obama's family background, economic philosophy, and fundamental political ideology. Dreams from My Real Father is the alternative Barack Obama autobiography, offering a divergent theory of what may have shaped our 44th president's life in politics. In Dreams from My Father, My Real Father, Barack Obama is portrayed by a voiceover actor who chronicles Barack Obama's life journey to socialism from birth through his election to the presidency. The film begins by presenting the case that Barack Obama's real father was Frank Marshall Davis, a Communist Party USA propagandist who likely shaped Obama's worldview during his formative years. Barack Obama sold himself to America as the multicultural ideal, a man who stood above politics. Was the goat-herding Kenyan father only a fairy tale to obscure a Marxist agenda, irreconcilable with America's values? This fascinating narrative is based in part on two years of research, interviews, newly unearthed footage and photos, and the writings of Davis and Obama himself. Dreams from My Real Father weaves together the proven facts with reasoned logic in an attempt to fill in the the obvious gaps in Obama's history. Is this the story Barack Obama should have told? Revealing His True Agenda for Fundamentally Transforming America? Director Joel Gilbert concludes, To understand Obama's plans for America, the question is, who is the real father? <laughs> uh, the, uh, you have to check out the, uh, the book's website. Uh, it's, it's ObamaAsRealFather.com, <laughs> and it has pictures of Barack Obama Next to this guy Frank Marshall Davis, that uh, they, it does show a certain familial resemblance. Yeah, I don't know. This it is still to me. This is a little wooly. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch. But it's. I, I think it's. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm in. I mean, I want to. I want to find out what the deal is. You know, I want to talk to this author and, and see what he has to say. Um, I by the way, I, yesterday or it was the day before? I think it was actually uh, Tuesday. It was Tuesday, given that yesterday was Yom HaKippur. Um, I interviewed um, a woman who has a book about Mitt Romney that basically says that he's unqualified to be the President of the United States because he is a radical Mormon, and she, uh, she made that case. So I, I think that, um, you know, I feel a little queasy about, about doing certain of these sorts of interviews, but I do try to balance it. And uh, I have people on both sides. And, by the way, I accuse her on the air of being a paid hack uh, for the Democratic National Campaign Committee or some Democratic outfit because it's just interesting that she's going out with this book at this time and sending out press releases. You know, and Plus, she's a public relations person. That's her business. Um, her contention being that Mitt Romney is not qualified and should not serve because the Mormons – are into some kind of strange theology, and and she's deliberately uh, trying to get interviews on conservative and right-wing radio programs like mine, uh, because there's where Mitt Romney might be able she might be able to peel off a few votes, or at least discourage a couple of people from going to the polls. To me, this smacks of a classic hit job. This is like. Um, I mean, I think George Bush did this in uh, 2000 when he uh, had like a robo phone call to uh, voters in one of the primary states accusing McCain of fathering a black child or, or some nonsense or, or being a ca- anti-Catholic, I think it was. You know, this is like politics at its ugliest and worst, you know, fanning people's fears and, and uh, you know, racism and ethnic fears. But yet there she is. Posing as a former Mormon and saying that she loves conservatives and doesn't like Barack Obama, what a load that is, and yet weaving this terrible tale of Mitt Romney taking and Ann Romney taking Mormon oaths now you know the the oaths that she described, I don't like them either, but they're no different than they're probably not as bad as. The oath's taken as an initiation into a, a Masonic Lodge. You know, I'll, I'll cut you from head to foot and let your guts spill out and throw your entrails into a, a railroad track and, you know, if you ever reveal the secrets of the Lodge and that kind of stuff. It's uh, its distasteful to me. I don't like any of it, but I don't think it's fair to single out Mitt Romney given the fact that... Uh, we have had American presidents going back to and including George Washington who have taken those sorts of oaths. I mean, we found out in 2004 that both presidential candidates, for pres- uh, both major presidential candidates, George W. Bush and John Kerry, both had pledged to Skull and Bones at Yale. And Skull and Bones, their pledge is, is nothing. I mean, the, you know, the Mormon Pledge or the Masonic Pledge is mild compared to that. I mean, they have some kind of strange rituals in the basement there that, um, I mean, I you know, I've only seen it hinted at in terms of what it's about. But it's nasty stuff. I mean, it's dealing with, you know, they're literally skull and bones, dead bodies. Uh, so, you know, I, do I like any of this? No, I don't. I don't. I'm not someone who's ever taken a pledge. Um, I think that actually uh, – People who take these pledges should not run for office. I mean, they, they shouldn't be serving as president. You know, I'm against this whole idea of people involved with secret societies serving as president. I want to know what people are about. I want to know what they are planning. I'm against secrecy, um, and I do think that it's an issue. But I think that this author, to single out Mitt Romney, is self-serving. Do we know if Barack Obama is a member of any of these groups? I, I don't have any idea if he is or not. Uh, but we do know that he's pretty darn secretive about his past. That we do know. Not just the birth certificate either, but also, you know, his uh, his college records and everything else. We certainly know that um, that Elizabeth Warren is pretty darn secretive about hers. She won't even tell us who her corporate clients were, let alone her, you know, her. Um, personnel records at at a major job. I mean, those are standard things that a campaign has a right to ask for and that the public has a right to know about. You know, Mitt Romney, they say, well, he didn't release his tax returns. Well, fine. That is an issue. I think that he should. You know, that's a problem for him. I mean, recently he did release it, and no matter what he puts in there, he's going to be attacked because of the fact that he's successful and rich. Apparently Mitt Romney pays, by the way, a higher percentage of his taxes than do most people who pay federal taxes. Um but putting that aside, Mitt Romney is living on the capital gains of his previous earnings. It's that simple. That, that you know, he's afraid that's not gonna look right to average Americans, so he's a little reluctant to release his forms. Plus he knows that they'll be lied about and they are being lied about. It's exactly right. Um but he should release them anyway. I mean, I, I'm against the idea of, of having these things secret. Just get them out. Get it done. Rip the band-aid off. Put it out there and be done with it. Um, speaking of, of Mitt Romney's taxes, by the way, I mean, Mitt Romney is someone who worked his backside off for probably the better part of two decades, long, long hours working day and night, you know, six, seven days a week, very little time off. In order to achieve what he achieved, which was an enormous success at Bain Capital and a big income for himself. You know, he made tons of money, but he started from scratch. He went into that company. He wasn't the money man who entered that company. He was brought in there because they knew he was the energetic guy, the idea man, the one who would make things happen. You know, he knew how to have meetings, he knew how to. He had a good sense of, of, of uh, what works and what doesn't work. He, you know, They got that sense from him, very accomplished. And so he did that for 20 years, made a lot of people rich besides himself. Now, after leaving, he lives on the capital gains, which is monies that were already taxed as regular income going into various investments. And so coming back out, it's taxed at 13.5%. Now, people might criticize the fact that Romney pays capital gains tax, not income tax, because he doesn't live on income. But if they're going to criticize that, what are they suggesting? Are they suggesting that uh, the government, that Barack Obama, that the Congress raise the capital gains tax? Do they think that would be a good idea? You know, I think the last time, the, the last president who cut capital gains taxes substantially. Was Bill Clinton, and it led to a boom in the economy. The president before Clinton, who actually cut capital gains tax, was Jimmy Carter, which again led to, you know, staved off what was perceived at the time to be an imminent recession. In other words, if you cut the capital gains tax and you leave capital in, you know, corporate taxes in the hands of investors and not penalize them for holding investment, what happens is you encourage investment. You encourage people to use investment as a means to increase their income without worrying about the big tax because it's income that was already taxed. You know, the whole idea of a cap gains tax is regressive anyways, but it's generally been acknowledged by both Democrats and Republicans that it's a good idea to keep capital gains low. And I would note that Barack Obama has never recommended that there'd be an increase in the capital gains tax because it's just a bad idea. So you, you, you can't really criticize Mitt Romney for paying capital gains tax. And by the way, Mitt Romney did not even take a full deduction for his charitable donations. Speaking of which, my guest on the other day who criticized Romney's charitable donations to the uh, Mormon charities... She's going around the country with the press release saying that this money really isn't going to charity. It's going to private businesses that are owned by the Mormon Church. Now, I have no idea whether or not the Mormon Church owns private businesses. If they do, then they do. That's fine. She was critical of that, of course. Uh, if they own – she said they own a mall, they own railroads. Good. They're creating jobs. They're, creating, they're, they're bringing goods and services to the market. They're creating opportunity. They're creating products and services. Nothing wrong with that. And they're making a profit? Sure. That's, that's part of the free market. Nobody does it for free. You know, we, we move beyond slavery in this country. We don't work for free anymore. But the fact is that her accusation was that these monies that people were donating to the Mormon church as part of their tithing, which is 10%, that that money was going to finance these private businesses. And her proof of that was that the Mormon Church would not actually tell them exactly where the money is going to. Now, I would say to that that that's a problem, if that's true, and she would be right to complain about it. But she has no proof, and the likelihood of that being the case is very, very slim. Because if the Mormon Church was using... Monies that people had taken a tax deduction for, and that therefore the money was going into a a you know a charitable organization or a, a non-profit. If they were then turning around and using that money for profitable endeavors, then that's a crime. You know, people could go to jail for that. You know, those are that's that's a misuse of funds. It's illegal. You know, I mean, first of all, the IRS, I would imagine, would have investigated it a long time ago, and deemed these people to be um, breaking the law, and they would have withdrawn the tax-exempt status of um, of the um, you know of the Mormon charity. So, you know, to attack Mitt Romney for that, it's ridiculous. It's based upon no proof. I think Mitt Romney has given 10% of his income to what is by any definition a charity, and that includes the church itself. Giving money to a church is a tax-deductible charity. Churches are non-profit organizations. They're not in business. You know, I mean, my wife and I pay money every year in dues to a synagogue. We take a tax deduction for that. The synagogue is not a business. It is a non-profit that provides non-profit services to the community, religious services, social services, educational services, and whatnot. And they pay their expenses, which is the salary of the rabbi or the priest or the minister or the deacon or whomever. There's nothing inappropriate about uh, the existence of that or taking a tax deduction for that money spent. And that's what Mitt Romney has done. So this idea that she's going to travel around and try to hook into conservative concerns is 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 looks to me like a paid job. I'm just that's just the only way I can see it. Um, this is on the front page of the Drudge Report. It's a it's a video of a woman in Cleveland who is saying Ob- Obama has my vote. He gave me a free phone. Uh, you know this is really something. Listen to this.
2: Romney again? Romney, he's corrupt. He Obama. Yeah, Obama. You got Obama phone Yes, everybody in Cleveland, low minority, got Obama phone. Got Keep phone Obama phone. in president, you know. He what? gave us a phone. He gave you a phone. You board. Board. How did he give you a phone? You, you sign up if you're you on food stamps, you on social security, you got low income, you
1: disability. So there you have it. The Obama campaign is giving out phones in Cleveland, Ohio, according to this woman. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, people who are on disability or who have no income apparently are getting phones. I wonder what else they're giving away. You know, I mean, you, you wonder why they, the, you know, but Ohio is really the battleground state, that's for sure. And um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, you know, it's um, – is this going to win it for Obama? I mean, look, I, I will tell you, I think that um, Obama, the Obama campaign, already voting is coming in. I mean, people have already even started voting this week, believe it or not. And the voter fraud is going to be unprecedented. There's no other way Obama can win this thing but to steal it. Stuffing ballots is going to be at an all-time high. I believe it's already happening and that um, if, if Republicans, the, the fix is in in terms of Republicans complaining about it because you've got the Brennan Center, which is fined, which received a seven million dollar check from George Soros, and apparently George Soros is active again in terms of giving money, saying that anybody who dares question the election is a racist. They have something against black men and women. And um, meanwhile, you've got people voting. You, you, we had one one Democrat running for Congress. In um, in Maryland Was discovered having She was voting both in two states She was voting in Maryland and at her summer house In, in Florida She had to step down But how much is that happening I mean look people you know they say Well we've only discovered a handful of cases Well sure that's what's been discovered But when you're You know when, you, when you're handing out The scads of ballots And when the laws are set up in such a way Starting in the Clinton years where you're not allowed to ask for people to identify themselves. And now we find out that Obama is handing out the campaign, is handing out free phones. What else are they giving away? You know, I mean, to get to for people's votes? Hey, you know, what the heck? Um, yeah, I, I think that that is probably the biggest danger that, that Mitt Romney is facing right now, and that is, and attempt to steal the election, and I think that they pro and given the the political orientation of Barack Obama and his people who are backing him, and Elizabeth Warren, who is the poster child of this in my opinion, who should be put out there up front, they will do anything to hold on to power, and they believe that what they're doing is right because they believe that they are smarter than the rest of us. They have this great goose-stepping mission that they need to advance as they move forward into the sunlit future, and that anything goes. It doesn't matter. It's all good. It's all moral, because what they're about is moral. They're trying to stop this evil Mitt Romney and the Republicans, and therefore any you know, they will not just look the other way in terms of how they do it, but very vigorously and proudly and, and eagerly. Seek to find ways to make sure that this happens. I think that a lot of these uh, polls coming out are exactly indicative of that. Uh, Dick Warren is being criti- uh, Dick Warren. Uh, Dick. Dick Morris. Dickie Morris is being criticized for for pointing this out, but he's absolutely right. Uh, the polls are skewed. They are interviewing primarily Democrats. They are interviewing in general in general models. Based upon previous turnout, particularly in 08, when there was an unprecedented turnout, and not this year, which, they pro- which there may be, may not be, probably not, and they're skewing it to look like Obama's going ahead as a way to help Obama raise money from big, fat, liberal, left-wing conservative donors, people like Elizabeth Warren who might have made their money the old-fashioned way through corporations, you know um and so you know it also creates psychologically this sense oh well the game is over and they talk about mitt romney in the most derogatory terms possible you know that he's it basically the the, the general rant against mitt romney is the same rant that has been lodged against any and all conservatives today and historically and that is that they're not sane that they're 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 uh, you know they're not dealing in reality that only the left is sane, <clears throat> which of course is a complete inversion right there. And um, it it creates a, a a a situation where, you know, the vote could be suppressed slightly. People may get discouraged. They may become you know depressed a little bit. I know I have. They may feel like, you know, this is, you know, forget about it, it's over. They decide to, you know, resign themselves to four more years of Obama, you know, and the the utter mediocrity of that because it's inevitable. I mean, there's this whole sense like it's going to happen anyways, it's inevitable, so just sit back and and take it and get used to it. And uh, it's very psychological. Now, this is something that It may be happening, it may not be I think on the ground it's not happening Because I think that on the ground People are not going to vote for Barack Obama They may say they are But they're not And there's still a lot more time to go Uh, The debates are coming up next week I believe they are next Wednesday night Um, I think Mitt Romney is going to do fine Mitt Romney is Unlike Barack Obama Mitt Romney is a normal person basically. I've met him many times. He's like just a regular fellow. He doesn't uh, put on any kind of patina. Of course, that's a problem because he can't lie um, and get away with it. Um, It was recently pointed out to me, by the way, that um, unfortunately, Paul Ryan lied during his acceptance speech about something trivial, which was his uh, running speed at a marathon? <laughs> he claimed to have run less than three hours, when there are no records of that. Um, the records show that he did not run that fast, and that's too bad. I wish he hadn't done that. You know, he's a good guy, but he's very competitive, and he might have let allowed his, especially around stuff like athletics. I understand he works out constantly and he's in absolute tip-top shape he might have let that sort of ego help him maybe rewrite a little history there and that's damning he shouldn't have done it i condemn it i don't think it disqualifies him but um you know it's one of these little white lies that you can't do anymore al gore learned that i mean he was lying like crazy during his debate with george bush and I remember seeing in fact after the first debate when he was caught having delivered several real whoppers of lies he was sitting there on I think it was Larry King or one of those shows with Tipper and he almost couldn't even say anything he, because he was afraid that he was so used to lying that he didn't want to um say a word he was afraid it could be a lie i mean it really posed as a major problem for him of course we know that he was a classic example Of what I'm talking about, a classic pathological liar whose life was constructed as a lie, like Elizabeth Warren's. I mean, just uh, not to go back in time, but I remember the big one with Al Gore was his claim that he grew up in a household that was a champion for the civil rights movement, and that they were great. His father had been a senator from Tennessee who he claimed had lost his Senate seat because he stood up so strongly for the civil rights movement. Well, a, a, a reporter in Washington went and took a look at the record of Al Gore Sr. to see exactly what he did do with the civil rights votes, and apparently he voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Civil Rights the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I might have that reversed. I think it was voting in 1964 civil in 65. He voted against it. So Gore was flat out lying about that. I mean, he uh, Bill Clinton's mentor was a um, was one of the Congress's most arch segregationists, very actively so, that being uh, J William Fulbright of Arkansas. I mean, yeah, another example of how people can rewrite history. I remember that um Haley Barber, he's a Republican governor of uh, of Mississippi, was criticized when, they, when he was thinking of running for president. He went to a college that was segregationist. And he said, well, back then all colleges in the South were segregated. But he was being criticized as a racist for this. Well, guess what? I mean, Gore went to a segregated college. So did Clinton. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous. But when you're a conservative, you know, it's a uh, it suits a, a narrative. It really does. And I think that most conservatives understand that and they accept that. That's just the way it is. That's the air we breathe, as I heard um, John McCain say recently. you know, And it is. It's just the way it goes. People who stand for conservative values are going to be attacked. But there is a line that you can cross, and that line I definitely was crossed um it definitely is crossed in the case of Elizabeth Warren. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with hour number two. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks here at Blog Talk Radio. In the second hour, we will be joined by our syndicating radio stations. So please stay tuned. To join the program, three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. That number again is three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. You can email me at chuckmorse number four at gmail dot com. Uh, I'm awaiting the arrival of um, my guest this hour. That being uh, Stanley Kurtz. He is a writer for the National Review. His article is called Burn Down the Suburbs. Not exactly, but Obama is already working to get rid of the suburbs. Uh, this is a pretty scholarly piece of work. He's the, it was adopted from a larger article, Spreading the Wealth, How Obama is Robbing the Suburbs to Pay for the Cities. Uh, let's see here. Stanley Kurtz is, um, he is uh, the uh, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Former adjunct fellow with the Hudson Institute, special interests in America's culture wars, his writings on the family, feminism, homosexuality, affirmative action, and campus political correctness have appeared regularly for publications such as the National Review, Policy Review, the Weekly Standard, the Wall Street Journal, and Commentary. Kurtz graduated from Haverford College and holds a Ph.D. in social anthropology from Harvard University. He did his field work in India and taught at Harvard and the University of Chicago. He has published extensively on family life, child-rearing, religion, and psychology in various parts of the world. During the 2008 election cycle, Kurtz published several editorials that discussed relationships between Barack Obama and some Chicago church leaders, such as Jeremiah Wright and former Weather Underground member Bill Ayers. According to Kurtz, the educational program on which Obama and Ayers collaborated was ultimately unsuccessful. His 2010 book, Radical in Chief, claims that Barack Obama is a socialist. In 2012, Kurtz reported the discovery of meeting minutes of the Chicago chapter of the New Party from the 1990s, describing involvement by Obama, then a candidate for the Illinois State Senate. According to Kurtz, the minutes record that Obama asked for the new party's endorsement and joined the group, claims later denied by the Obama campaign and his Fight and Smears website, in addition to signing the new party candidate contract. I wonder what that is. Maybe um, Mr. Kurtz can elucidate a little on that and perhaps bring us up to date. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be back with our guests. Please stay tuned. is a number if you'd like to join the conversation Chuck Moore speaks Monday through Friday noon to 2pm Eastern Standard Time emanating from Boston 347-327-9849 I'd like to welcome in our affiliate stations Cyber Station USA Radio Network WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon of course we're heard on Stitchers which is a an app you can download for free and listen to this program anywhere in the world. As mentioned, Stanley Kurtz, Senior Fellow at Ethics and Policy Center and Public Policy Center, former adjunct fellow with the Hudson Institute. Stanley, thanks for joining me this afternoon.
3: Chuck, thanks so much for having me.
1: Uh your article is interesting and provocative here at the um the National Review with regard to the Obama administration policy going way back pertaining to uh, the view of the suburbs and of the urban centers. Could you elaborate?
3: Well, sure, Chuck. I've just uh, published a book called Spreading the Wealth, uh, How Obama is Robbing the Suburbs to Pay for the Cities. And as you can tell from the subtitle, it's all about uh, the idea of redistributing uh, the wealth of America's suburbs to the cities. And it turns out that for nearly two decades, Barack Obama has been a huge supporter of a movement whose purpose is to have city governments swallow up and control suburban governments, again, with the idea of somehow grabbing a hold of that suburban tax money and funneling it over to the cities. Now, this is something that uh, people don't really know. Um, this is a movement Obama has been deeply involved in for decades, and chiefly because the community organizers who first trained him. Uh, We're at the very center of this movement, and people haven't known that this was an interest of Obama. And it's not just something from the past. Uh, The reason I wrote the book is because I discovered that right now, today, in the Obama administration, uh, President Obama is working with the very same community organizers who trained him on, uh, on this project of redistributing the wealth of the suburbs to the cities. And again, this really hasn't been reported, but it's a very important aspect of Obama administration policy. Uh, Stanley, I think
1: that there probably was a similar movement maybe at the latter part of the 19th century when you had cities like New York consolidate with the five boroughs. You had Boston basically take over, Dorchester and West Roxbury and other regions, and you had an urban expansion. Um, I don't know if what you're describing is the same as that, but um, and I don't think it was to the benefit of those those suburban towns either. But uh, how is this actually, or has this yet, actually manifested itself? I mean, are there, for example, major cities that are annexing suburbs outright, or is it much more of a sort of a, more of an administrative and subtle development? And if so, how is it done?
3: Well, those are great questions, Chuck, and you're right. It's more administrative and subtle, but you're also correct to bring up the 19th century precedent. What really kicked off this newer version of the movement was a book published in 1992 by someone named David Rusk, who was a former mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Rusk's book was called Cities Without Suburbs. And what he really advocated there was an extension of the 19th century plan. He really advocated the annexation of suburbs by cities so as to redistribute that tax money. The problem for Rusk was, That most states since the 19th century have outlawed forcible annexation You can no longer do that without the consent of the governed uh, Which, of course, is a very good thing And so what's happened is that this movement that Rusk found That the regional equity movement Has devised a whole series of ways of getting around the formal bans on annexation How do they do that? Well, there's really a a three-part plan First, you try to pressure suburbanites to move back to the city or prevent city members from moving out to the suburbs. How do you get suburbanites to move back to the city? Well, you make it expensive and difficult to drive. Uh, you have fees and taxes and levies on uh, driving and parking. You, even as in the case of Portland, you draw an actual development boundary around the metropolitan area, which makes it possible, impossible for suburbs to expand. And so part one, again, is having the suburbanites move to the city where you want their tax money to flow into the coffers of the city government. Part two is to get the urban poor to move out to the suburbs. And you do that uh, by trying to force suburbs to build low-income housing and to change certain rules and regulations, for example, that currently allow landlords to um, turn down a prospective tenant if they have a public housing voucher. This is already being done by the administration in Westchester County, New York State, and they promised to expand it substantially to suburbs across the country in a second term. But people really aren't paying attention. So part one, again, is to force the suburbanites back to the city. Part two, you force the urban poor out to the suburbs. Part three of the plan is to redistribute the wealth of the remaining suburbanites to the cities. And the precedent for that is in Minneapolis-St. Paul, where they have a practice called regional tax-based sharing. And in that case, the state legislature in Minnesota forced all of the municipalities in the Minneapolis-St. Paul region to kick in a big chunk of their tax receipts to a common regional pot. Then that gets redistributed uh, according to a formula that largely sees the suburban tax money flowing ...to the cities and some of the less well-off inner-ring suburbs. So if you force the suburbanites into the city and force some of the urban poor out to the suburbs, and you redistribute the money of the remaining suburbanites, even without annexation, in a sense, you've abolished the suburbs.
1: I think that there are several manifestations of what you're talking about that could be pointed to. The first is a policy by this administration that I think has been articulated by the Secretary of Transportation... To actually increase or maintain a high cost of gas
3: Absolutely, and in fact um, I I speak about Ray LaHood's uh, statement in the book That the goal of the administration is to coerce people out of their cars He actually said that under uh, questioning from the press And, uh, And I go into some of this I mean, there are a number of departments It used to be that the cabinet, you know, was more important than the cabinet is now Now that the czars in the White House have taken things over and of course, the, the less influential cabinet uh, posts that we don't pay attention to, like Secretary of Transportation and Secretary of Housing and uh, Housing and Urban Development, uh, it turns out that Obama is working some really ambitious, transformative, and very redistributive policies through these less well-known cabinet departments that the public and the press simply haven't focused on. In a way, it could be just as radical as transformation. Of the country in a redistributive direction As anything in Obamacare And as I explain in the book It's uh, it's coming in the second term And the foundation stones have already been laid And I can go into more detail if you like By all means Our guest is
1: Stanley Kurtz Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center uh, Stanley, besides the, the deliberate uh, Fixing of, of gas prices at a high level um, You know, it looks to me like um the the idea of um, helping the urban poor move to the suburbs is something that is subsidized by the government, subsidized housing. And that's something that's definitely happening in my neck of the woods here in Boston um, in several uh, communities in the suburbs that ironically are not the wealthier communities. They're communities like Quincy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Dedham where where you don't have as much uh, political clout. And, and the people need to realize that this is all federal subsidized housing it's a part of the budget um the issue of infrastructure development which is supposedly to take the place of the automobile the further the further development of subways on the surface we we think that's a good idea but what it really comes down to is um paying public unions and private unions into exorbitant wages to uh, to do this work which could be probably done at about a tenth the cost and that's also a transfer of wealth to special interest constituencies that the administration relies on and that the Democratic Party has built itself on over the past many decades. But what you're talking about, the third rung that you're discussing, the um, you know, what's going on Regional in Minneapolis? Taxpayer, and Paul, sure, yeah. yeah, I mean that that to me is, is more troubling than anything because that is a stealth way of of essentially removing the the literal, I don't know, constitutional but traditional power of elected officials in cities and towns. I mean, it's transferring those powers to a regional authority that I don't know if they, if they answer to the state or they answer to the federal government, but um, but either way, it's a transfer of governing authority from elected officials in a local community, whether it be a mayor or a town uh, council or, or a, uh, a school committee or whatnot, to these unelected regional authorities that
3: are probably funded by and controlled by the federal government well Chuck you're absolutely right the federal and state governments would control these regional authorities and it's really a way of undercutting uh, our tradition of local self-government the the foundation of the federalist system as the founders uh, created it and conceptualized it and this in fact is uh, at the core of Obama's vision for America and again it's amazing That nobody knows about this. I had written an earlier book about Obama's radical past and I hadn't run into it. And when I discovered all this, I wrote uh, the new book, uh, Spreading the Wealth. And so let me give you an example. Uh, You know, I begin Spreading the Wealth by talking about a meeting that was held at the White House in uh, late uh, 2011, uh, organized by some of the very same community organizers that Barack Obama was trained by and who he worked with in Chicago for years, very radical organizers. Now they were literally organizing a meeting at the White House, bringing in local politicians, state legislatures, mayors from what are called inner ring suburbs from throughout the country to the White House to hear talks uh, by people like this David Rusk and another fellow named Myron Orfield, who was the leader uh, of the movement uh, that supports uh, regional tax base sharing in Minneapolis St. Paul. Essentially, Obama is working with his old community organizing buddies to create state by state coalitions in the legislature to force these regional tax base sharing plans on individual states. And then Obama has a program that nobody pays any attention to called the Sustainable Communities Initiative. Mm-hmm. It's got a name that sounds like gobbledygook. No one really knows what to think of sustainability. If anything, they think of ecology. But in fact, it's very much a part of this regionalist or regional equity movement. And once this program takes root in the second Obama term, you're going to see the anti-sprawl advocates, the regional equity ad- advocates of practices like uh, tax base sharing come out with plans for their areas, cl- plans for their localities, Uh, that involve uh, these practices which force the uh, suburbanites back to the city and which directly or indirectly redistribute the taxes. And at that point, Obama will have the option of making the receipt of federal uh, aid of all sorts conditional on local adherence to those plans. And so through federal pressure, uh, he could help to bring these... uh, redistributive practices and these anti-suburban practices to localities across the country. And, again, people just haven't been following this and aren't aware that it's even a possibility, which is why I wrote the book.
1: Well, I, and I appreciate that, Stanley. I think that what you're talking about here is something that didn't start with Obama. This goes way back. I mean, this is um, it's a trend that I think goes back to the late 1950s when the federal government passed an act that looked good at the time and that probably was good, In the context of their time, with regard to education and the furtherance of math and science scores and education, President Eisenhower was concerned after the Sputnik with the United States falling behind in math and science, so the federal government began to grant, you know, block grants to the states monies that were specifically designated for science and math education, which looks like a good thing on the surface and is a good thing. But the problem is that it set a a context in which the federal government would give the communities money with strings attached, and then the communities would essentially cede local power or local control over education to the federal government. It was like they got hooked on those grants. And since then, of course, it's it's expanded. I think in the 1960s, this uh, kind of urbanization program was much more blatant. Than it is now in a way that they could not get away with now in that uh, urban planners were, were literally knocking down entire neighborhoods and re- redesigning them with new buildings and just people were just driven out, given notice, and told to leave overnight. That certainly was what was happening in Boston. Now it's much more subtle, and, it's, and yet it's the same idea, which is essentially a transfer of local authority by elected officials to a federal bureaucracy. And what adds to this, and you you, you mentioned this in your book and get into it, is the further development of and empowerment of these so-called czars who operate in the White House very secretively, unaccountable to the people. They're not elected. They don't have to undergo uh, congressional oversight. They don't undergo congressional hearings for their office. They answer directly to the president. And we've had a phenomena in the Obama administration, I think, that's become more apparent after the 2010 uh, midterm elections, in which they're increasingly willing to uh, do an end run around around Congress, around elected officials, both in Congress and uh, states, to essentially put forth executive orders and run, run the government that
3: way. Well, you're absolutely on target, Chuck, and I've got a whole chapter in spreading the wealth on education. It fits very closely with what you say, and this is another area in which the public really doesn't know uh, some very alarming facts. For example, and most importantly, President Obama has already effectively created a new national curriculum for our K-12 through schools, and uh, constitutionally and legally, The federal government uh, really should not be missing in the school curriculum, and yet 45 states have now signed on voluntarily, and I use quotation marks around voluntarily, to something called the Common Core, which is going to be a set of standards which will very quickly be converted into a national K-12 school curriculum. Forty-five states have already signed on without even seeing what the Common Core consists of, and what I show in the book is that it's going to be a politically correct lessons, it's going to have dumbed-down standards, and there is a plan by the same people who brought in the Common Core to lever that federal control of the curriculum to force a redistribution of suburban education spending to city schools. So this is really a massively ambitious redistributive agenda for education, not to mention the leftist and uh dumbed down school curriculum standards and the public really doesn't know it. In fact I think if Obama is reelected you might see something of a new wave of Tea Party rebellions when parents start to see what hits their schools. In fact we're already seeing something like this in Indiana and Utah and I think they're the forerunners of a national rebellion against this curriculum that nobody really realizes is coming.
1: Well you know even in Massachusetts, liberal Massachusetts there was some discomfort when uh, Governor Deval Patrick embraced what you're talking about, this new curriculum. And it was admitted, even in the Boston Globe, that the new standards are actually lower than the standards that had been maintained in our state and that uh, there was some consternation about that. There was a little bit of a bubble of discontent, but then the whole thing evaporated into the ether. And, uh, of course, what you're talking about is a reconnection, a re re introduction of the OBE, the outcome-based education standards of the late 1990s, of Goals 2000. I mean, we could go back to the days of John Dewey, who talked about this in the early part of the 20th century, this idea of a national education program that essentially uh, it doesn't end round around, around uh, parentally controlled uh, local and city and state uh, education. Uh, you know, we think that our educational system is controlled by elected school board members most of whom have sons and daughters at the schools and who live in the community, and that we determine the nature of our own children's curriculum. But, in fact, it's increasingly become uh, under the auspices of the federal government of the National Education Association, which sends out memos once a year after the convention to all of the different um, members of the school boards whom they, they got to help elect in terms of what their new agenda is and to adapt those to the conditions of their own states and to the department of education which was created in nineteen
3: seventy eight by jimmy carter as a payoff to the teachers unions helping him get elected well that's it Chuck you're exactly right in fact i'm impressed with your public policy knowledge and your knowledge of public policy history you're exactly right and in massachusetts had really the best state created standards in the country and They've now been undermined by uh, Governor Patrick. Uh, I think it's a terrible shame. But, you know, notice that all of these things we've been discussing, the uh, regional tax base uh, sharing, the sustainable communities initiative, um, the new national curriculum, they're all under the radar. They haven't really been discussed in public debate. Here President Obama is running for re-election, and these hugely ambitious and rightly uh, controversial uh, policy changes are not being uh, talked about in the media. They're not uh, a subject of debate in the campaign when they are uh, th- they really are transformative and redistributive. And this is the amazing thing. He has succeeded. How, how has he done that and kept it all under the radar? Well, again, Sustainable Communities Initiative, it sounds like gobbledygook, and the uh, plans don't really get issued until the second term uh the a uh, core uh, common core curriculum again it's only just now beginning to come down the pike and it won't be till after the election that parents really see uh, what their states have signed on to without a consultation and without even seeing what the results will be and then these meetings in the white house that obama holds to push regional tax base sharing he doesn't advertise that speak about it when he makes a public address So there's a whole level and dimension of Obama administration policy that's very, very far left and that nobody knows about, nobody's talking about. And that's really, again, why I wrote Spreading the Wealth, because this is – theoretically, this is what voters ought to be looking at when they decide who to vote for. That's
1: for sure. Stanley, you talk about this sustainable community initiative. Uh, Does this have anything to do – and maybe I'm getting a little off field here – But does it have anything to do with the Agenda 21 and their uh, sustainable initiative? This was something that came out of the – I think it was the Rio Conference or the Mexico City Conference maybe about 10 years ago. And it was this idea that um, this uh, international agency would oversee um, environmental regulations on the community level, community by community, and that they would get communities to embrace this Agenda 21, even though the U.S. government at the time, under George W. Bush, rejected it. um, It sort of has still sort of sneaked its way in, and you now find in various cities and towns across the country that they're employing so-called sustainable development specialists who are implementing these international rules. Does this have anything to do with Agenda
3: 21? Well, there's tremendous overlap between the content of Agenda 21 and the regionalist movement that I describe in the book. Uh, and and the, the positive side of that is that the grassroots conservative activists who know about Agenda 21 are sharper than almost anyone in spotting out these under-the-radar um, plans once they're floated publicly. But the problem with the Agenda 21 business is that Um, Right now, Agenda 21 doesn't have any formal power, and and most of the activists who are pushing these sustainability initiatives locally, uh, even when they're on the left, aren't doing it because the U.N. told them to do it. In fact, they've probably never even heard about Agenda 21, and what I have found is that as conservatives bring up Agenda 21, they get made fun of as conspiracy theorists, as if they're saying the U.N. is reaching in and controlling this and that. And I think it's much not that the Agenda 21 isn't worth worrying about, because it is, but the vast majority of the problem are coming from these local groups, American-created movements that keep their heads down. That's another reason the conservatives focus on Agenda 21, because the uh, um, American groups are smart enough not to make a target of themselves by coming out with these unpopular redistributive ideas. That stand behind all of this sustainability business Mm -hmm. So I advocate that conservatives need to educate themselves On these local movements Like this regional equity movement I described And all of the related movements And they'll be much more effective in their public battles If they're pointing to their real opponents on the local level No, I entirely agree And I don't
1: think it's a conspiracy As I said, the, um, the Agenda 21 was rejected by the Bush administration It's not something that our governments accepted. I think it's much more of an informal influence that, that it has wielded ever since, sort of a behind, you know, sort of a just a, a introduction of it uh, locally, uh, not controlled by the UN, but yet nevertheless they did publish a book about this that uh, generally has been a guidebook for those who are becoming sustainable development uh, officials. I know here in Boston, for example, there's one that's just been hired
3: by the city of Dedham. Absolutely. Uh, the, the agendas overlap. It's just that the, the real power is coming from the local groups, but it's helpful to fight Agenda 21 and to know about Agenda 21, but the big gap in conservative knowledge right now are the, 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 the giant apparatus of foundations and activist groups here in America that we need to become more aware of. They are the thing we need to study to become more effective.
1: Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me, Stanley Kurtz, the author of an article this week on National Review Online. You could read that, Burn Down the Suburbs. Not exactly, but Obama is already working to get rid of them. Stanley, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Chuck, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Take care. All right, we'll be back after these messages. 347-327-9849, if you'd like to join the conversation, 347 three, right here at Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m., at Cyber Station USA Radio Network, Blog Talk Radio, and our affiliate stations. Uh, check out my blog site, which is uh, Chuck Morse Speaks, or a Whig Manifesto, either one will take you to the blog. Uh, we just had uh, Stanley Kurtz on. He's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a former adjunct fellow with the Hudson Institute. Stanley has uh, a new book out, um, Candidate Contract. Um, he uh, he really does present some startling uh, and troublesome information with regard to um, what a second term, Obama second term, is going to look like. And... Um, I just hope that this information is working its way out there. I mean, I'm certainly doing what I can do here at this uh, radio show, I mean to the best of my ability to alert the public to play my role as sort of a um as a as a bit of a um uh, you know, riding the horse and um and and sounding the alarm like Paul Revere, you know? I mean, the British are coming, you know, the the government is coming. And he talked about, I think quite articulately, this uh, sustainable commission um, that um, is part of Barack Obama's agenda. Um, I don't think, again, this is new to Barack Obama. It's been out there for a long time. Going back to the early 1960s, when you had the development of the National Governors' councils and National Legislative councils, where there was somewhat of a move toward regionalism which is to say a move away from local government. And this is a state phenomenon, not so much federal. um, And essentially a move away from local elected government and more toward regional appointed government, where government doesn't have to go through the the, the burdensome (laughs) effort of, of electing people every two or four years, but in fact can conduct their business through fiat power. In other words, they could become like kings. They could become like Soviets. That's what a Soviet is. It's a council. The word Soviet is Russian for council. Uh, And uh, that these councils of economic policy, these councils of sustainability, these councils of whatever, educational excellence, they can uh, start to create policies in all areas of our lives, whether it be how we educate our children, um, educate areas of law enforcement Environment Welfare policy You name it And uh, and that this is not again Barack Obama's fault uh, He's certainly uh, a huge believer in it It goes back As I said to really the, the 1960s I think it really got off the ground In the mid 1960s With Lyndon Johnson's development Of these big bureaucracies The war on poverty so called And what not And um, It's a transfer, again, of power from elected officials to appointed bureaucracies, in some cases international bureaucracies, which are made up of people who are not American citizens, who have no uh, right under our Constitution to legislate anything, but yet um, there's an attempt by people like Barack Obama, who really doesn't believe in the Constitution, to uh, do an end run around the Constitution by implementing these fiat powers, and that's what this sustainable commission's all about. Check out Stanley Kurtz's work. Um, he argues that Bar- Barack Obama is a socialist. Um, he's uh, discovered that he was part of the so-called New Party in Chicago, and uh, a lot of these these things are going to become manifest in a way that I think people won't be able to believe if Barack Obama is reelected and if he has four years. In office essentially is a lame duck He won't have to run again He won't have to be accountable to anybody He is going to have Unbelievable powers And Barack Obama has already made it clear That he's not immune to Or shy about exercising Those powers um, You know uh, Stanley brought up the issue of uh, of the The, the switch over In our educational modalities To this national Uh, Education program, this uh, so-called well regional equity, but um, these national standards that are both dumbed down in terms of the ability of our young people to actually learn how to think cognitively, how to learn topics of of value, to this sort of behaviorism that was uh, originally advocated by John Dewey and other so-called frontier thinkers or uh, so-called progressive educators. And, um, you know, this all paid for by our taxpayers, our, our taxpaying monies, all paid for by the um, life and the experience of our young sons and daughters who attend these schools and who are being used as guinea pigs, and all uh, essentially for the purpose of, uh, you know, turning children into um, into human resources is what, what they call it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of... By conventional definition, it always has been somewhat of a conspiracy, and I say that word very loosely. I don't mean people sitting around in a, in a smoke-filled room. But, you know, a, a sort of an informal conspiracy between the left and the right, as those terms are conventionally defined, the left being people like John Dewey and Barack Obama and the educators around him, the uh, frontier thinkers who want to create a new type of person, a socialist, basically, which uh, in which things like personal ambition and um, self-interest and other uh, human tendencies that they don't like are taken out and replaced by the uh, moral control of the state. Um, they implement programs like sex education, which is why the, what, what that program is all about, um, and other programs as a way to sort of dumb down people's sovereignty, people's ability to operate as a, as a, as a solid, moral, functioning citizen, and, uh, and make them more inclined toward a, a collectivist approach by getting them involved in, in satisfying immediate pleasures as opposed to taking a look at their life in the long term and controlling their own life and destiny. Uh, I think it's a deliberate agenda, and I think on the right, of course, by conventional definitions, you have big, 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 big multinational corporations who want to create docile and pliant employees who will be not uh, won't give them any trouble. Now, I, I would argue that in reality, these sales same corporations are not on the right; they're on the left. <coughs> that uh, on the right, you have. Smaller companies that are much more interested in promoting themselves and and in their citizens and, and in their employees, and, and they're not interested in manipulat you know in, in getting a manipulated workforce. But nevertheless, this is in the broad sense what I think is going on. And Barack Obama has a background in this. I mean, he worked with Bill Ayers. Um, on a foundation in uh, in Chicago that was trying to transform education. Uh, we could take a look at their agenda, but it's very much a part of it. And that this agenda that uh, Stanley Kurtz talks about, this uh, deliberate defanging and depowering of the suburbs, is something that's very real. He makes the case very well. It's something that is under the, under the guise, under the radar screen. It's not reported on much. Um, and when it is discussed, uh, people are, <clears throat> you know, attacked and and, uh, de- and denounced, and to use an old Stalinist term, for bringing it up. But people feel it. You know, they don't know what they're feeling, but they know that something is wrong. And those of us out here who have the courage to speak up must do so. Now, is Mitt Romney going to be any better as an administrator? The short answer is yes, he will be better—not much better, but better. Mitt Romney is not going to be as likely to to uh, implement these programs, but he's probably not going to be completely opposed to them either. Uh, Romney is definitely a um, an establishment uh, player. You know, there's no question about that. Uh, sort of a Republican that is not unlike Richard Nixon, if, if you will. Not that there's anything wrong with Nixon, but he's, he's an establishment player. He's going to have members of his a cabinet who are part of this so-called agenda. And Romney, I think, has let it be known to these people that he intends to play ball with them. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be in the position he's in right now, which is as a Republican nominee. Um, so it's, it's still going to be out there, but it'll be slower we'll have at least a chance as sovereign citizens in this country to educate people and to bring them up to speed in terms of the nature of this Agenda 21, to see if we can get people to go to their local city and town and find out about it, um, and find out if this is something that's happening, to take a look at this Sustainable Commission initiative, to look at this Common Core Curriculum on Education to find out if your local city or town is in any way implementing these things, and if they are run for office. You know it's a great experience. I have done it. I ran for Congress in Massachusetts in two thousand four. I ran against Congressman Barney Frank. I debated Barney Frank a half a dozen times. I got my head knocked in, but nevertheless, during that time, I was able to get out a couple of little ideas that I think improved the policies of my state and country I exposed certain things about Barney Frank with regard to his support of the Frank amendment which allowed terrorists to come into the United States legally I'm not going to get into that issue right now but uh, I will tell you that right after my election Frank was dismissed from the Homeland Security Committee because I sent this information to Republicans in Congress and they brought it up and it became discussed, and it became a bit of a buzz in Washington. So, you know, you know, it's a great exercise, and you can do it on the local level. You might even win, you know. I mean, one can win a local office because in a local community, if you're running for school board or you're running for city council uh, in a district especially, it's a small entity. It's a small area. And it is big enough that you literally can go out and knock on the doors of your neighbors, make a list, and and talk to every single person in your neighborhood just by taking a little time after work each day, maybe right after the dinner hour, maybe between 7 and 8 o'clock. And if you do this every night and you go around each street by street, you can cover a small district in a suburban community. And you can talk to every single one of your neighbors about just a couple of talking points, a couple of issues that you're concerned about. And by doing this, you can win. You know, there's a very good book written about how to do this. I don't have the name of the book in front of me, but it was written by none other than former Massachusetts uh, congressman and and national speaker of the House, uh, Thomas P. Tip O'Neill who was famous for saying all politics is local, and he was right. Tip O'Neill, when he first ran for Congress up in Somerville, Cambridge District, he went out and knocked on every single door in his community. And, by the way, he was a big, fat guy. I mean, he was not in great health. But he did this, and he won, because he made eye-to-eye contact with everyone in the community. He heard people's concerns. He took notes. Um, He... uh, you know, learned what, what, what people were thinking about, but he also put forth just a couple of points that he wanted to get across, and he educated people. So, uh, you know, we still have this system in this country a system of, of holding elective office, and elective office is still a very influential place to be. And I urge people to do this, whether you're a teenager who uh, maybe has some time on your hands, you could do it as a high school student. Uh, you know, I mean, you could, you could you know, do it over the summer and after school, knock on doors, as long as you're 18 years old and registered to vote, you can run for office, you know, first year of college. Uh, I think that this guy down in, um, I think it's in Texas, just won, a con- won the Republican nominee for Congress. He was just out of college as a young guy. You could do this as a housewife, you know. You have a little time on your hands. Uh, you know late in the day after you get the kids all packed off to school, maybe in the morning, you can spend a few hours a day in the morning or maybe in the early evening after you 've served your family dinner. You can go out and knock on the doors and and present yourself as a candidate for school board or for local city council or regional council, and you could get elected and even if you don 't get elected, you will be on you could get on the ballot with very little effort. You know, it's very little bit money on a local level. These are not big, expensive campaigns. And you can get your issues heard. This is how you build and educate the public. Um, and you develop a, an agenda. You develop a couple of ideas that you want to alert people on, things that you care about, whether they be local, state, or national issues. I'm talking about this because of my interview just now with Stanley Kurtz, and he brought up issues that really are not our local issues regional issues issues that really affect us affect our lives affect our ability to determine our own futures affect our pocketbooks affect our ability to to have elected representatives serve us as opposed to appointed people that's what the american way is all about and it just reminds me of of urging people to uh, to heed this message And to understand that these powers are being transferred to the federal government, and that Obama is a major proponent of that, and that the best way to combat it is to run for office on the local level and win. And, again, even if you don't win, at least you're heard, and that's the important thing. Anyway, you're welcome to join me in the final segment of the program, 347-327-9849 is the number. 3473279849 and we'll take a brief break we'll be right back You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. Samantha Clemens will be joining me tomorrow at 1 p.m. Uh, Samantha was a uh, talk show host on what is called in Boston, or what was called in Boston, Revolution Radio, very left-wing, so-called progressive radio station. She started her career at WMFO at Tufts, just like I did. Uh, where she trained to be a talk show host, and uh, unfortunately, and I say this because it is unfortunate, they all just lost their jobs because the station has gone all sports. Just what we need, another sports station. I've got nothing against sports, but it's like, how many sports stations can you have? How much can you talk about sports? Anyways, it's just another silencing of voices. That while I may not agree with their politics, it it saddens me that um, that they've been knocked off the air. And that includes Jeff Santos, who is a pretty solid liberal, you know, talk show host. But she's coming on tomorrow at one. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about what happened over Revolution Radio, um, and uh, find out why it is that both Revolution Radio here in Boston and also Rush Radio, all of the talk show hosts have been fired. You know, they've all and they've been replaced by these sort of banal syndicated either banal syndicated shows like as in the case of um Rush Radio it's really the worst it's comedy hour they just run clips of comedians all day very funny i mean it's funny i suppose but i mean i don't know all day and also rev radio revolution radio is now gone this is from the headlines of today's drudge report it's a video sound i'm going to hold the phone i'm going to hold the mic up to this you can hear this it's a video of a woman saying in, in Ohio Obama has my vote, he gave me a free phone. Uh you know, apparently they're handing out phones in Ohio. Listen to this. Yes, everybody in Cleveland no minority got Obama
2: phone. Keep Obama in president, you know? He well, gave us a phone. He Give you a Go phone. phone how did he give you a phone? up if you're on full stamps, you on social security, you got low income, you disability. Hey, okay, what's wrong with Romney again? Romney, he's subbed, let's Obama! You, you got Obama phone? Yes, everybody in Cleveland, low minority, got Obama phone. Keep Obama in president, you know. He well, gave us a phone. He gave you a phone? To How did he give you a phone? You sign up, you're, you're on full steps, you're on social security, you got low income, you
1: disability. By the way, I mean, I, I hate to, I mean, just a quick thought on that. If if people can sign up to get this free phone, why can't they sign up to vote? Just a thought, just a thought. Uh, you know, anyway, apparently this was a rally in which people were holding signs for Obama and it looked pretty rowdy, making really nasty remarks about um, about Mitt Romney as well. And uh, apparently, the Obama campaign, either them or maybe someone affiliated with them, is handing out free phones, probably with the idea. I, I probably, I would imagine they're probably cheap. You know, they're giving them like prepaid phones with like you know, for ten bucks they get a little time on it. I would bet. <clears throat> but. Um, the idea is that uh, they will um, – how should I put this? They will be calling these, you know, these people with the phones on, on Election Day and seeing if they can get them to the polls. I mean, this is just – I think this is probably just the, the beginning of what we're going to see in this election. They're not going to leave anything to chance. You know, they wanna, they're going to get elected come hook or crook. They're determined, believe me, this is, a, this is an election that's going to be um, stolen, in my opinion. Right now, they're, they're working on trying to, you know, using propaganda to convince everybody that Obama's ahead in the polls, something that I, I don't believe for a minute, and uh, as a way to create sort of a psychological conditioning for people to become discouraged and depressed and say, "Ah, oh, it's over and not bother, plus it adds to a narrative about Mitt Romney. And um, and then they're going to go for, um, at the same time elect- voting is starting, they're going to go for stealing. It's just pretty obvious to me. And um, that's what we're looking at here. It's troubling, and it's scary. And I would just urge people to uh, to wake up, you know. just That's all you can say. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, just, you know, this is – Is this what we want? Is there a real reason, anything compelling about electing Barack Obama, for another term, for anybody? Does anybody benefit from that other than maybe uh, people who are, you know, on the public dole or people who are government employees? And even then, why not be honest? Why not do something for the good of your country, you know? I mean, we all vote in our own self-interest, and I think certainly, obviously, taxpayers, small business people, uh, you know, they have an interest in, in voting, you know, Obama out. But in the broad sense, I mean, do we? where do we want this country to go? Do we want to have Barack Obama in office as a lame duck for four years? Can you imagine the damage that he could do in that time uh, to our elected government? And this is why I think the left is so absolutely rabidly uh, insisting on, on reelecting him, because he is one of them. Because it is a a power grab, you know. It's a it's you know it is an attempt to um, to you know to hold on to power at any cost, and that's exactly what they would do. That's what exactly what they'll do because that's what they're all about. Seems obvious to me. 617, what is the number here? I'm sorry. Um, Apologize. 347-327-9849. 347-327-9849. Come on down. Check out the show. I'm really very um, amazed by the information that uh, Stanley Kurtz shared with us. His uh, developing story, I guess Israel, um, it says uh, Netanyahu has delivered a speech. He says there's a clear red line. I don't think anybody wants to see a war between Israel. Believe me, but um, there are some troubling developments over there. Here, Netanyahu to set clear red line for Iran. He's at the UN. He's speaking. He says Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu will set out in his speech at the United Nations on Thursday, which is today. An ultimatum for Iran to halt its disputed nuclear drive or risk coming under military attack, an Israeli official said. Netanyahu faces the world body after U.S. President Barack Obama disappointed some Israelis in his own address to the annual assembly by not calling for a deadline to be imposed on Tehran, though he did say time for diplomacy is not unlimited. Israel sees a mortal threat in a nuclear-armed Iran and has long threatened to strike its arch foe preemptively, agitating war-weary world powers as they pursue sanctions and negotiations. Complicating Netanyahu's strategy have been his testy relations with Obama as the U.S. election looms, and the reluctance of many Israelis to trigger a conflict with Iran, which denies that it is seeking to develop nuclear weapons and has pledged wide-ranging retaliation if attacked. The Prime Minister will set a clear red line in his speech that will not contradict Obama's remarks. Obama said Iran wouldn't, won't have nuclear weapons. The Prime Minister will clarify the way in which Iran won't have nuclear arms, senior Israeli official said en route to New York without elaborating. Though he has not previously detailed when Israel might be willing to go to war, Netanyahu has said Iran could have enough low-enriched uranium by early 2013 to refine to a high level of fissile purity for a first nuclear device. Israel worries that this final step, if taken, could happen too quickly or quietly to be prevented. Iran has said it has no plans to enrich uranium beyond the 20% purity required to run a reactor producing medical isotopes. That level, however, brings raw uranium exponentially closer to the 90% enrichment required for bomb fuel. Though reputed to have the Middle East's sole nuclear arsenal, Israel would be hard put to deliver lasting damage to Iran's remote facilities using its conventional forces or to handle a multi-front war. Of course they can't do it. I I just hope that um, Israel, you know, can hold off another month until after the election. And if, God willing, Mitt Romney is elected as the president, then I think that we'll have a much tougher stand from the U.S. government. And, um, you know, Mitt Romney does not strike me as being one of the most – Knowledgeable of, of people when it comes to international affairs, but I know that he's got some good people around him, especially uh, uh, John Bolton, who I think is very, very good. And I think that um, this will send a message to countries like Iran, which is that the United States means business. That's the very same message, for example, that uh, Eisenhower sent when he was elected. He said, I will end the Korean War, and he did, um, you know, because North Korea knew that if they continued, the United States would use a nuclear weapon against them. And, they, and Eisenhower said so in meetings in North Korea. He actually went there during his period as president-elect, uh, at least to the uh, to the Panmunjom, which is the um, true city, and met them and said, stop the war, because if I, when I come into office in about three or four weeks, if you don't stop the war, I'm going to drop a nuclear bomb on you. And they knew he meant it. So they stopped the war. I think that same message needs to be applied here. The only way to have peace in the world and the only way to keep peace in this region is through strength. You know, It's like what Ronald Reagan used to say, peace through strength. So there's reason enough to elect uh, Mitt Romney. Anyway, I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at the usual time, noon to 2, 1 to 2 here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. I want to thank everyone for listening. Stay tuned for Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan at Cyber Station, and have a good afternoon, everybody.